Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofer sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Welcome to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and through the magic of technology, we will presently be joined by Chris Osmar. Before we begin the show this week, I just wanted to extend a heartfelt thanks to our listeners out there. With your help, we've passed 6,000 episodes served just this last week, and Chris and I have been really humbled by just the scale of the response and the interest that's been shown. We now have listeners on every continent in the world except Antarctica. But, you know, if any of you happen to have any colleagues in the natural sciences who would be willing to help us round that out to all seven continents, don't hesitate to let them know. Wherever you're tuning in from, thanks for listening. And if you happen to agree with Chris and I about the importance of this particular era of history, please consider leaving a review and a rating on iTunes. It's a selfless act, and it'll help the podcast reach a broader audience. On that note, we have another great episode lined up for you today. We'll be talking about another chapter by Gerhard Powell entitled These Shootings No Longer Move Me Inwardly that addresses some of the structural explanations for violence at the end of the war. We address some arguments that will be familiar to you by now about who terror affected and when, but come to some new insight about how best to portray the development of violence in the end phase. But first, it's time for the HNET News. Chris, what do you got for us today? Yeah, there's a book that I'd like to talk about. It's uh, Jane Q. Whitman's Hitler's American Model, uh, published recently in 2017 by Princeton University Press. Uh, Whitman is a professor of comparative and foreign law at Yale Law School. And in this book, he examines the influence of American racial laws on Nazi Germany, uh, in particular, American immigration laws, citizenship laws, and laws against miscegenation. And, you know, given the current political climate in the United States, it's not particularly surprising that quite a number of media outlets have picked up on this and have uh, run reviews of the book in the last five or six months. So Whitman approaches this question of how U.S. laws impacted the creation of National Socialist uh, Racial Law by examining the notes of Nazi policymakers uh, who made frequent and positive references to the way in which the United States sanctioned racism through the law. Uh, but of course, Whitman's not the first scholar to have asked this question, ask whether Hitler may have looked to the U.S. when thinking about how to build his racial state. But up to this point, the consensus has been more or less that the Nazi regime 
referenced U.S. law in order to kind of justify what it was doing. Say, you know, look at what the United States is doing. They're doing it too. Uh, it's mm. not so bad. Uh, rather than looking at the U.S. as a model to be emulated. And what Whitman says is that uh, this argument uh, usually draws heavily on the lack of serious consideration in Germany of the Plessy versus Ferguson decision. Uh, that was the Supreme Court decision that uh, upheld segregation under the justification of uh, separate but equal. Uh, and people who have, have argued against influence from the United States on uh, German racial law have, have cited this as, as evidence that Germans weren't overly concerned with how U.S. was handling race in law. But what Whitman says is that if you if you look beyond the Plessy versus Ferguson decision, uh, which features very prominently in American memory, but uh, was not at all the only important racial law in the United States. If you if you go beyond that and look at things like immigration restrictions on people from Asia or state level anti-miscegenation laws, uh, you find that German policymakers, like people that were writing the Nuremberg Laws, do reference these American precedents, uh, and the connection becomes much more clear. Uh, and you know, it's also uh, worth noting that, that Hitler himself had quite a few nice things to say about the way the United States did things uh, in Mein Kampf, uh, did things like praised the U.S. continental focus and its westward expansion. Uh, and it's notable, too, that while he was in prison writing Mein Kampf, the U.S. passed the 1924 Immigration Act that effectively restricted the immigration of Jews and Southern and Eastern Europeans, uh, not to mention non-white peoples, to the United States by placing a, a quota that said that only, I think it was 2% of mm. uh, the current population of any given ethnic group could immigrate to the United States at the time. So uh, Whitman tries to pick out these, these transnational influences going from the United States uh, to not Germany, but he's, he's also careful not to take this too far and encroach into the arena of moral equivalencies. So he, he points out that the U.S. was not fascist, that much of American racism, though certainly not all of it, was covert rather than overt. And that in the 20th century, uh, the legal racism in the United States was decentralized, that it varied from region to region. And because of this, that effectively prevented the possibility of the development of a concerted extermination program like the Holocaust. Hmm. And, you know, I, I am always very interested in these kinds of cases. Uh, argument that, that looked for transnational influences on Nazi Germany, uh, because for such a long time, people at large have resisted any kind of comparison with Nazi Germany. That Nazi Germany is, is the great evil, uh, and we like to think that it sprung from nowhere uh, and you know was entirely evil, and, and it's something that we don't have to worry about having responsibility for or, or having any involvement in the same processes that led to Nazi Germany. And, and what Whitman's saying here does, does challenge that. Uh, and, and others have uh, 
recently taken a similar approach. And I think that's great. I think that there was a, a really a interesting book that was about uh, uh, forced sterilization programs and uh, eugenics that persisted in Canada up until the 1970s, right? Like this is not, it, it's, it's comfortable to put Nazism in a box that exists in its own world, but it doesn't really reflect a lot of the, the transnational cross-pollination that is happening in the scientific world and in the political world yeah. where these people are drawing those ideas, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, the U.S. I've lost the word. Huh? Eugenics? Eugenics! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, uh, of course, uh, eugenics uh, has firm American roots, uh, and that, too, is something that Nazi Germany looked to looked to uh, expand upon and improve upon. Uh, and, you know, all of this kind of grew out of a, a shared European pseudo-scientific culture that goes all the way back to the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Well, my my cousin actually gave me an amazing book for prospective mothers that is just quite simply entitled Eugenics. It's all about how to choose the ideal mate and how to have strong, healthy Anglo-Saxon babies, right? So, uh, (laughs) Uh yeah, uh, quite quite famously uh, in the U.S., there used to be something like a a fair, like a a county fair, where you would you know bring your animals and put them on show, but for people, families would come. And display themselves, and then <laughs> get a blue ribbon for being the family that most closely conforms to what the ideal family is. Oh, finally turned calf on that one, right? I was thinking, though, like well, this puts me in mind of a lot more of uh, the the transnational work that has finally been coming to fruition. That you know has been underway for the last decade or so, in terms of a kind of theoretical trend for history. There's a lot of stuff too about the. Um, transnational fascist movements and how the conversations between fascist movements across Europe and, and in North America, again, we're, we're constantly reinforcing each other and providing a collective pool of ideas that different groups were drawing on. I guess people don't tend to think about it as much when it comes to race, though, eh? Sure. And you know, with any, any of these objectionable ideas, uh, it's more comfortable to you know, put them in a small bubble and distance yourself from them. Uh, and you know, just from a practical standpoint, if you want to to study something like eugenics or racial ideas, it's easier to do it in a national context. You know, the, there are fewer language barriers. Um, there's usually a better existing literature, but you miss out on so much if you confine your examination of big topics to small areas. Very true. Without further ado, moving swiftly onward, we arrive at the discussion. So I guess the place to open up, what did you think of the article this week, Chris? Well, it was great. Paul really gets into the material that we've been talking about for for some time now in a lot of detail. So the, the, the center of this chapter, like the meat of it, is pretty much every end phase crime that happened. And I've never seen it laid out for, really for the, the entirety of the Reich like this before. But I think what it's more valuable for is uh, his attention to explanations that have already been offered by other historians, and he offers some explanations of his own. 
Mm-hmm. I was particularly interested in what you would make out of the radicalization, cumulative radicalization and spiral of chaos argument versus the spatial contingency, sort of the situational nature of the violence, considering mm-hmm. your your interest in what we just talked about before the, st- the show started. But- uh-huh. Well, you, you know that I very much favor the, the situational factors as motivation for violence at the end of the war. But, you know, one thing that, that Powell uh, points out in this chapter is that you need to consider a lot of different factors. A multifactorial explanation is superior to one that, that rests too heavily on one approach or another. Yeah, when we, when we were talking about this before we started recording, I, I mentioned that things like the influence of, of ideology or the radicalization of an individual are certainly sufficient to cause someone to be willing to commit murder in the end phase. Uh, that that those kind of, of motivations work if you believe or if you only know how to behave violently, but they're not necessary. That there are other other things that can and did motivate Gestapo officers to kill in the end phase. Yeah, it, I suppose it's worth saying that the article is called these shootings no longer move me inwardly and as you say it's sort of an inventory of all of the executions such as we are aware of them from either local studies that have been done or the justice and national socialist crimes collection of post-war trials of specifically gestapo executions that occur in the end phase and he then goes into this larger discussion about so what are the reasons for these executions. Why did the Gestapo begin to execute people? And he really, he comes up with six major, he comes up with six explanations for why the Gestapo killed these prisoners and people. So the first one that he lays out is this idea of decivilizing structures of of a society in chaos. So the collapse of social norms and order essentially contributed to Uh, a whole new level of violence that previously just sort of the fact that you're living in a relatively normal environment, uh, you're not going to cross that line. The second one is debureaucratization and decentralization of the Gestapo. So the killing process became easier. There was number three, the effort to prevent a second stab in the back, a second sort of 1918 style collapse that had ended the First World War and very much formed a part of the Gestapo's narrative of Germany had not been defeated in the field, but it had been defeated by subversives on the home front. Fourth, there was revenge for Germany and revenge for the destruction that was raining down from the bombing campaigns and from the imminent defeat. Uh, Number five, there was the number of foreign workers on German soil and the effect of national socialist propaganda in presenting them as a threat. And finally, there was the pressure of loyalty and the SS culture Gestapo personnel had learned and and the way that SS culture dehumanized people, basically, that uh, by being part of the Einsatzgruppen, they learned to behave in certain ways that then, as the situation developed at home, they began to apply. So the imperial practices came back to Germany proper. I should add that there, there were a few other factors that he, he brought up as well. There was a desire to eliminate 
witnesses to the very worst crimes because you know if you hope to have a future for yourself personally or germany and you understand that there probably will be trials if you just murder the people that can say what happened then you may walk away scot-free and on the flip side of that others felt like there was no future for them in the post-world war and were panicked about it Uh, and because they didn't figure they had a future for themselves figured they were doomed anyway there was not the same kind of restraint on them that may have otherwise been there if they were thinking about consequences yeah if i'm going down i'm taking you with me Mm -hmm. so what do we think about the what do we think about the argument which parts of it work and which parts don't i guess Uh, as far as all these different factors that he identifies Mm -hmm. uh i i think that the whole idea that this was a society in chaos and that that's what drove the violence is maybe not as strong uh, as the rest because at, you know as we've talked about before there were periods of panic and crisis and then recovery from it so i don't think that that explanation covers as well variation in the time and place of the crimes Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm also not as convinced by this idea that there was a drive to avoid another November 1918. I mean, this is one of the most powerful tools in the National Socialists' arsenal when you want to criticize somebody or what they're doing, saying that that you, this is leading towards another stab in the back. But I don't see how I don't see how the the Gestapo could have expected that a revolution of that type was going to happen again. I I suppose they may have loosely interpreted what a repeat of November 1918 would have been as, you know, a not a military defeat, but a political defeat, that they're fighting against a a political defeat and a breakdown of morale. Uh, Mm -hmm. Certainly there's there's something to that, but I I think it it credits the Gestapo with uh, kind of having too much hope for the future. Hmm. See, I really like this article because there were a lot of times that I was writing in giant capital letters in the margins of my notes going like, not the case. Like that it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's got a really compelling series of arguments and some of them work quite well in certain circumstances, but as an overview, it's, Here's your structural overview. Take a look at everything. But once you start to get into the details of like, okay, but at what moment do does that behavior begin and why does it begin? Is it more about the situation or is it more about a cumulative radicalization process? Is it more about the fact that there's chaos or is it more about the fact that there is a real perceived security threat? Is it more about the fact that there is a debureaucratization and a decentralization of the Gestapo because Paul is really trying to portray the violence as the result of individuals essentially having more leeway to make those decisions. And does that necessarily hold true for Germans in the same way that it holds true for foreign workers? And then even then when you step back again, he's trying to push the narrative of major executions beginning in the fall, but he's divorcing the major executions that happen in the fall from a very specific crisis that happened in Cologne. And then we just kind of perform a trapeze jump 
over to February from from October November into February March which is when you really have a one month period from March to April when there are a ton of killings in the Rhine Ruhr area so I really liked it because I was like okay these are really good ideas and really good explanations where do they work and where do they not work and he was giving he's putting down enough stuff to really start to like okay well that may be true here but not there so i i got i got really i got really picky about which parts work and which parts don't but i think it's it's a really it's an interesting article as a result so well maybe the the takeaway from that is that that all of these explanations worked for some people in some places and sometimes, and you know, I'm I don't know that that I agree with this, but you, if that's the way you felt about reading this article, you might think that a general explanation is impossible. No, I, I that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that I totally disagree with certain elements. I, mm-hmm. you have won me over on the whole situational violence versus radicalization uh-huh. thing. I think you're right. There's way more to be said about the importance of the situations that are arising and the nature of the space that people are operating in, that their surroundings change and therefore the behaviors change. Because I, you can see the way that the violence advances and recedes in response to real situations. Whereas I feel the way that the way that Paul describes it, and I was, I was talking about this yesterday with somebody, is that it sort of goes... And this is a very common, it, it's taking the concept of cumulative radicalization from the Holocaust, where it finds a new atrocity, right? Like some novel form of, of persecution that did not exist previously. And then it is like, well, how did this new thing happen? And what did it happen in response to? But then it treats that as the new baseline of terror. So the resulting narrative is sort of like an upward, a, a line that is all, a line labeled terror that is always going up and hits a point and then plateaus for a while and then goes up again and plateaus for a while. Because every time you see one of these events, that's just treated as the new baseline for operation, right? And Paul points out early on in the article that it was mostly foreign workers who are the people being targeted by these behaviors. But then Germans kind of slip in and out of the narrative without really clarifying what kinds of behaviors they are being executed for. And the argument of debureaucratization and decentralization may work with foreign workers. I'm not sure. I, I don't know that I even, I don't know that I buy that necessarily, but the, he discusses the sharpened measures as designed to liquidate opposition, right? Like that he's, he, this kind of language of the Holocaust and extermination rather than Mm -hmm. the language of control and maintaining the war effort. And I don't know that the Gestapo is even necessarily the right institution to be looking at for the way that average Germans are being kept in line at this point, because the the Germans that are popping up are former communist functionaries and people who are involved in resistance groups. And they're executed in very small numbers compared to larger executions of foreign workers. 
And even then, I don't know that it's so random because you're talking about you're talking about major executions, like 80 people, 100 people, 200 people being processed over a, a period of time. And processed there, I think, is the key word because it's not like these people are being shot out of hand. They're being selected and evaluated and then they are either being shot or not. And that in itself is again, kind of, and again, we've talked on about this on previous podcasts, this seems more like a decentralization and uh, a creation of local decision-making authorities rather than a complete decentralization and debureaucratization of the killing process. And it, all the killing that does occur occurs in line with the memos that are being released and it occurs after certain memos are released and other memos are not, or the large, large amounts of killing do. So again, the, the smaller executions, like where he, he has an example of like three people being killed, right? Or maybe when we're talking about the Erklens Commando during the fall crisis, which kills 80 people over a two-month period, but it's in its executions of one or two people. That sounds very different than the the large scale executions that you're getting from February onward, but really in the final month in the Rhineland from March to April, where it is, well, we got to figure out out of everybody we arrested, who are we going to kill? And this is the criteria for who we're going to kill. And none of that sounds like chaos to me, right? It still sounds very deliberate. I right, So I, I think this, what what you bring up about are these killings guided from above or below is very interesting. You, you point out that for the, the larger executions, there's usually some kind of order that, that precedes it. It may not come from Himmler, although oftentimes it does. It may come from someone like Gutenberger, the, the higher SS and, and police leader. But the, there does seem that there, that there still is some kind of control over the system as a whole. Uh, even though it's not structured the same way, that it is decentralized, that some some authority has been uh, pushed down, uh, or at least there is an understanding in place that if you lose contact, then uh, you have the authority to to execute people without referring to the RSHA or, or to even Gutenberger. But all the same, I mean, it, there were these orders, so the local Gestapo leaders knew what was expected of them, more or less. And I don't think that we, we can discount that altogether. And you could even maybe look at this as kind of a working towards the Fuhrer type situation, where they were able to read between the lines. You know, they've been been told which groups they can shoot for which reasons, and, and they can interpret what the purpose of that order is, and then elaborate on it if necessary. But what I'm saying is that they don't need to interpret that the orders stack up one after the other in a way that gives local decision-making authority, but as part of a longer, a longer set of orders about who it is acceptable to use certain methods against and how you have to behave if you if you suspect certain behaviors among another group, right? So you can 
like you say, you can kill a foreign worker if they are theft adjacent, right? Suspicion is sufficient if you are dealing with a non-German, but you have to have your little tribunal. There's still a legitimate decision-making process if you're sure. going to go through that with a, with a German, right? And, and all of those, all of, none of that happens in a vacuum. It all, they, orders are part of a series. They're delivered in series. If you look at them, they all reference the previous orders in their subject lines. Like my communication from whatever, whatever, right? My communication from February, my communication from January, my communication from November, right? And some of the, some of the memos in that sequence are missing. But so maybe there are more direct orders about who you can and can't do these things to that might be in there. But more importantly, for what I'm saying right now, is that when the decision making process is decentralized, it's not as if communication collapses and then people are just making decisions on their own arbitrarily. Mm -hmm. They are they are where Germans are concerned, part of a decision-making group that legitimizes those decisions. And when they are not acting, when they are empowered to act alone against foreigners, it's within a set of guidelines that have been set up for that situation. So the issue that I take with Paul in this article is one of emphasis in the way that the narrative is discussed, not in the actual content. But it's important because the theoretical framework that he lays out is this idea that there is, uh, as he calls it, a, a security paranoia, a spiral of violence, uh, what a, a society and chaos, society and catastrophe, like all of the all of the imagery and metaphor and theoretical explanations for how the violence advances is one of a loss of control rather than an adaptation of existing structures to maintain control. And I, I think that's an important difference. I, I, I think that you're right about that. And I'm, and I'm not even sure that Paul would disagree with you. No. Uh, the, the Gestapo has not ceased to function. Uh, it's, it, hasn't, it hasn't broken down into you know, rioters in the streets. But even though there are still these guidelines coming down from the top, I think that we do need to appreciate that the individual Gestapo commander in the field still has a good deal of leeway to do interpretation. They're going to decide you know, what it means for someone to be a plunderer, for example. And we have cases like in Castle where there was this train that got robbed by some Germans and Italians, and the Gestapo shows up and they decide that the Italians are plunderers and the Germans aren't, uh, and wind up shooting the Italians. So they're given the tools by people higher up in the authority structure, but they're still ultimately making the decision. Like They know what categories of people they're allowed to execute, but they're still kind of deciding where the boundaries of those categories are. They can't go too far afield uh, one way or another in determining who fits into a category slated for execution, but they are ultimately making that decision on their own. But that's why I'm saying that it's important we keep Germans distinct when we're having that discussion, because the rules as they apply to Germans are entirely different, right? And the rules as they apply to German are subject to outside review by parallel authorities. And so 
what he's saying, that's what I meant at the, at the outset of this discussion, is what he's saying applies much more to foreign workers, but because of the way that Germans slip in and out of this discussion, the issue that I'm taking with this is that what you're saying and what Paul's saying definitely applies to foreign workers, that Gestapo are empowered to make essentially arbitrary interpretations at a local level and define what plunder is and define this and that and the other thing. I'm cautious about overplaying the degree of interpretation, but I, I agree that it is there. That's not the case when you're dealing with Germans. There are parallel authorities that review any decision involving a German. So what Paul is saying definitely, and that's what I meant at the outset here, is that what Paul is saying may apply to foreign workers, but because of the way that Germans kind of blend in and out of the background of this narrative, you get the sense that the Gestapo had this power of decision over everybody when that was not the case when Germans were concerned. Mm -hmm. So the extreme violence that they're exercising in Germany against foreigners and, and not against, well, not necessarily against Germans, uh, except in extreme cases, you're saying that, that that gives us the wrong idea about the terror system as a whole? Uh, yeah. I, I've noticed uh, in general, for example, with, with the concentration camps, the public perception of the concentration camps has a lot to do with what the concentration camps looked like when they were liberated. Yes. Because that's what got filmed. That's that's what you know regular Allied soldiers saw and told people about. Uh, that's that was the image of the camps going into the post-war trials. But what the concentration camps looked like in 1945 wasn't a whole lot like what they looked like in 1942 or 1939. Not that they weren't terrible in all of those times, but we need to appreciate that the late war image is not necessarily telling us the whole picture about the entirety of the regime. Uh, and here it sounds like what you're saying is that the same thing could be at work with the terror system, that there is this extreme violence at the end of the war, mostly against foreigners, but memory of it or allowed uh, Germans to suggest that they were completely controlled by a totalitarian terror regime, which you know, most Germans would have a real interest in presenting that that case as well. Yeah. And again, like the people who are responsible for writing the history of the Gestapo, the first generation of historians are people who experienced that system firsthand or fled as refugees abroad and lived in exile and heard the stories of what happened to their former colleagues who were still in Germany. So there's a lot to do with how the memory of what's happening is shaping what we expect to find and then the way that we the way that we tell the narrative around the events that do affect people where we're not really, if we were to step back to 40,000 feet, we would see the perspective is that the circle on the Venn diagram for foreign workers is massive. And then there's this tiny little, like tiny little pinprick that is Germans, right? And, and, and within that pinprick, it's mostly Germans who are involved in organized resistance in some way. And, I don't think that the Gestapo is necessarily the right institution 
to be looking at if you're trying to understand the social control of Germans in the end phase. I think it's the right institution if you're trying to understand the control of foreign workers. But if you want to look at average Germans, you've got to go back to Kershaw and you've got to be looking at the way that the militia regimented all men and the way that the party regimented all people right. in the name of civil defense, right? Like, and that though, but those, that's a, that's a fundamentally different experience. And then once you want to start talking about the flying courts and the Oho stories and the hangings in people's front yards by party members and the, the order that you could kill all the male residents of a house if it put out a white flag, right? That's stuff that is literally weeks before the end of the war. Like not, not even months, yeah. like we're down to eight weeks or less. So, well, so, so we can't generalize from the extremes of the, the very fast, the, the very last weeks of the war to you know, understand how the Gestapo controlled regular Germans earlier on. I don't think we can uh, generalize even, even within the, within that period. I don't think we can generalize the way the Gestapo controlled foreign workers into the way that the Gestapo controlled society even. Right. There's a very different there's a parallel set of events that's happening with average Germans. And I mean, they're reviewing people who have been arrested for a political offense for execution. But they're releasing everybody who's not involved in organized resistance, it looks like. Right. So, yes, you're you're really close to the edge. And theoretically, you could through a bureaucratic oversight, be caught up in one of these executions, right? But you're still in a fundamentally different system as a German where you have the inspector of security police and the higher SS police leader and the local Gestapo leader reviewing your file. Does this person deserve to be executed for what they've done? Then for a, a foreign worker who is, hey, this guy was next to a train that was just looted. Line him up, right? Well, do you think that, that Paul is is suggesting that there wasn't a difference uh, between the way that the, the Germans and the, the foreigners experienced Gestapo violence at the end. I mean, he, he is pretty clear about the fact that it was overwhelmingly foreigners that died. Mm -hmm. But Germans appear and there's no discussion of distinguishing those two experiences. So I'm not mm -hmm. saying, I'm not saying that Paul is conflating them, but he he makes no effort to distinguish them. Okay. Right. And, and like, again, that comes back to he's 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 engaged in a fundamentally different endeavor there, which is, wow, we need a picture of everything that happened, which is a big first step compared to kind of, well, now we have that picture and we can begin to figure out which parts of it are in focus and which parts aren't. Right. Uh, but yeah, what I'm saying is that he he acknowledges that it, it is mostly foreign workers, but then he still talks about it as a process of cumulative radicalization and debureaucratization and decentralization as unleashing a spiral of violence and things getting out of control. Okay. And that's yeah. not that's not what's happening at all. There's there's a really deliberate process going on here. And if it is happening, then maybe maybe it's happening with foreign workers, but it's certainly not happening with Germans. Huh. All right, so I, I think if if I take you right, you're you're saying that if there was uh, radicalization, brutalization, if the decentralization 
drove people to be more indiscriminately violent, then the indiscriminate murder of Germans would be a consequence of that. And because there was not an indiscriminate murder of Germans, maybe those explanations need to be re-examined. Yes, or even if the decivilization and brutalization process led to increased violence, it was still increased violence toward specifically identified groups and specifically identified behaviors that were a, con a continuity, a, continu a continuation of earlier behaviors. And, and Paul points that out. He says that what happened to foreign, what happened to foreign workers was the culmination of longstanding processes of moving them outside of established legal norms inside of Germany. I'm just saying that when we're coming back to trying to create a general picture of Gestapo activity in the end phase, it's still important that we have that a big line between where foreign workers are and where Germans are. And then within that, where people who are communists and former communist functionaries are and where everybody else is. I mean, this is, you know, this is something that I know you're, you're very interested in and we've, we've talked about before. Do you think that that just doesn't get enough attention that, that regular Germans were not swept up in this process? Well, this is why I was coming back to the, it's an issue of the presentation of the narrative. Right. And, and I mean, when you're trying to rebuild the structures of how violence unfolded, then that shapes your narrative in a specific way. That's an important history to write. And it's an important understanding to have. But then once you have that understanding, it's time to then be critical and a different kind of critical analysis that says, okay, and where, where is that the case? And where is it not the case? And why then that is, does, is that true there, but not here? And I do think that there is a tendency to just, like when people talk about the Gestapo, they tend to either, like there's still a tendency to apply, to generalize the behaviors, to extrapolate from the experiences of targeted minorities and the most extreme, I don't even know what the right word is, phenomenon just kind of doesn't do it justice, but like the most extreme ways of treating people. Um, the most extreme violence. There's a tendency. Are, are you to, just are you just trying not to say radical? <laughs> no, I'm not trying to say radical. I'm trying to find a way. I'm trying to find a word that encompasses torture, murder, and genocide under one big tent. So uh, the most extreme violence and the most extreme experiences of people who were subject to that violence are treated as the baseline of okay. what everyday practice was. And if that was like, that's not a realistic picture. If that was the way things actually were, then society would fall apart. Right. And then even in the end phase, that's not the way that they managed people. They managed people through the civil defense initiatives and through evacuations and through, through regimentation in giant militias. They didn't manage that. They didn't manage them through terror. Right. Terror is something that you can exercise against minorities. It's not something that you can use against the majority. Mm -hmm. I think this this could be an interesting exercise then. So if we operate from from that assumption that 
and and I think you're right that that the Germans are treated very much differently from the foreigners. And we return to Paul's list of factors that contributed to the violence and consider whether they speak towards the German population or uh, the foreign population. Maybe we could eliminate a few of them. Uh, for example, this, this drive to avoid another November of 1918. That seems like a motivation that would aim at Germans rather than foreigners. Um, mm-hmm. After all, November of 1918 uh, was a, a German revolution, right? So does an explanation like that maybe not belong alongside uh, the explanation that a large number of foreign workers and the influence of Nazi ideology drove violence? I guess what I'm saying is, are these two different kinds of violence that are happening at the same time, but that are not themselves motivated by the same factors? Um, so the way that I would approach it, tell me what you think of this, is that when you're looking at the structures that contribute to changes in Gestapo behavior, what's there on its own, there's nothing to take issue with. The issue to take is that there's no analysis of what routine practices were. There's only analysis of what extraordinary practice was. Is there routine practice in the end phase, though? I mean, the the Gestapo is involved almost entirely with trying to keep the foreign population uh, under control, preparing for the advance of the front. Has the extreme become the day-to-day practice at this point? Or you're saying that it hasn't? I'm saying saying, it hasn't. So what what else else are they doing during this time, then? What else are they doing at this time? I mean, they're not shooting people all day. They're Um, evacuating people. They're walking up and down the Abschirmungslinie between the red zone and the green zone, and they're turning people around. They're, uh, you know, capturing people and turning them over to other authorities when they're caught in places where they're not Mm -hmm. supposed to be. They are going through and they're processing hundreds of thousands, or not hundreds of thousands, they're hundreds and thousands of people who were arrested over the fall and trying to figure out why were you arrested again and do we actually need to be worried about you or was this just because you wouldn't leave your home, right? What I mean is there is no analysis of the routine behind executions. There is, a, there is, we see that the executions happened and then there's an attempt to explain, to find a structural explanation for why that phenomenon started to happen. Right. But there is less attention to looking at what the actual day to day routine of making it happen was. Right. Like, and when you look, when you, okay, when I, you I, analyze. I, I got to stop. Uh, it's, it was degraded to Dean, make happen was. You need to analyze the routine that makes these things happen because if you don't analyze the routine, you don't see why. It happens to certain people and not others. All you can say is this thing started to happen. And so we have to assume that this thing was now the new normal. And that it happened to everybody or that it could happen to everybody. You don't understand. You understand how that thing started to happen, but you don't understand anything else about it. Right? Like who it affected. I don't think it's a problem in Paul's work because Paul is again, working at a much earlier stage where 
nobody had written and nobody had attempted a structural explanation of why do you, why do executions start in the end phase, right? Well, now that we have structural execution, now we have a structural explanation for why executions begin in the end phase, we can start debating about, well, who do they affect, right? That's a different question is what I'm saying. But, and, and so I guess in answer to your point, I really don't like the chaos point. I don't think that it's chaos. I don't think that it's a loss of control. I don't think that it, the, all the discussion about the increasing independence of individual actors at a local level gives the impression that it's one guy who is drunk and out of control and he just decides that today I'm going to shoot these people. And there are cases where that happens, right? Like there's the, there's the really crazy, um, the witch of wherever, um, she was one of the, one of the women who was put on trial. One of the few prison guards who was actually tried and convicted and like, uh, you know, would walk all over the prisoners and things like that. And then there's another guy from Cologne who is, um, he would make the prisoners come out into the yard and then he would just like chase them in circles with a bullwhip. And so there are people like that, right? What I'm saying is those people existed, right? But to, to take the extremes, what it does is it makes the extreme cases the normal cases. And, it, and that kind of misdirects the eye away from the routines of function, which continued, which are what is important for telling you how, how the day-to-day -day played out. And what, like, because murder became day-to-day, -day, and so it's pretty important to understand how the day-to-day -day of murder either caught people or didn't. And yeah, so I think that's the next step for research, but I don't think that it's, uh, it's, you know, you can't do everything at once. You, this, that's why scholarship, you know, shoulders of giants and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I suppose the, the, the whole idea of the society in chaos assumes that, that there is no regular day to day anymore. Yeah. That the day to day is, is constant emergency. Well, I think, and I think that's part of why it's a tempting explanation for the complexity and the difficulty of trying to piece together what's going on, right? Once the situation becomes too complicated, there becomes a point where you just throw up your hands at the complication of it all and it's out of control, right? And there are cases where that happens, right? But the the system also adapts to continue to function through that chaos and when you begin to start to say that the explanation was that chaos overcame everything you can't have a reasonable explanation anymore about okay then how was how were things adapting how were they meaning abreast of the situation how were they attempting to maintain control right it just becomes a and in amidst the chaos terrible things started to happen right and it was a result of the chaos not a response to attempting to reassert control over chaos and i think that's an important difference well i I mean, we have the like with the case of of Cologne, where uh, there certainly is chaos going on, mm -hmm. and that you can have a a city in ruins that is uh, rife with crime, uh, and where the enemy is more or less at the gates, and that is a chaotic situation, uh, even if your 
you know, the structure of the police in that place remains intact, even if the lines of communication remain intact. The environment is different. The, the, the contingency of being in a time and place where everything is falling apart would affect behavior, mm-hmm. uh, even if uh, the the organizational structure hasn't broken down, or even if it has changed in a in a way, but uh, continues to function. But what I what so to your point about situation and contingency, I think that's that's the important thing that the chaos thesis overlooks. It stops at chaos as a contingency and then it treats chaos in the end as a, a constant that yeah doesn't go away and therefore is just the new normal right it's like terror is the new normal chaos is the new normal and it ever and it was that until may i this this might be a a good point to bring in paul's kind of the centerpiece of his chapter Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, testimony of the uh, leader of the uh, foreigner office of the Hamburg Gestapo, uh, Albert Schweim, uh, because he talks about chaos in uh, Hamburg, but the chaos he's talking about is the bombing of Hamburg. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that began much, much before the end phase. But he, he talks about it as if it was, it was constant, as if it, this this experience in Hamburg was a the perpetual state of the city for a very long time. Right. So Albert Schweim says, the motivations for the executions. I do not wish to deny that at the time I was convinced that one needed to intervene with the sharpest measures against plunderers, saboteurs, and agitators in order not to endanger the war industry in Hamburg. I internally justified the shootings at the time because I was loyal to those who held power and furthermore, a convinced national socialist. I must add that we had complete chaos in Hamburg after the big attacks and the war had reached its high point. That one is internally brutalized when one sees countless dead civilians killed by the bombs no doubt played a role for me as well. I want to add that in this time, when the law of the jungle ruled in Hamburg, we were practically no longer human. Wherever we went, there were dead from the bombs. Words fail to describe how terrible it was in Hamburg at that time. These shootings that I had to lead, therefore, practically, no longer moved me inwardly. Yeah. So there's a lot going on in that. Uh, he's talking, I mean, he, he uses the word brutalized, that the people were, were brutalized. He's talking about the chaos that's produced by the war. And then and he says that that's, that's why I didn't feel anything anymore when mm-hmm. I had to shoot people. But what he's talking about here, like, these these are things that had happened over a, a long period of time, and he kind of tries to treat them all as one thing. Like, he saw a bomb dead uh, on the street everywhere, uh, and then he ran off and, and shot a bunch of people. But that's not how it happened, right? It's clear that this experience had an impact on him. But, you know, why did it take months before he starts shooting people if that's what it was because this was a statement given in a post-war trial i think we have to consider kind of his defense strategy here Mm -hmm. Uh, he's he's implicitly saying that the allies were committing war crimes too that there were all these dead german civilians and 
that because this was an environment where civilians were legitimately killed, he was also legitimately killing civilians. He's not necessarily pointing out his real motivation. He's Oh, he does, he's, but he, he acknowledges his motivation, Chris. He says, well, he says, I was a convinced national socialist. Well, but he also says that I was convinced that you had to, you had to t- take, intervene with the sharpest measures against plunderers, saboteurs, and agitators in order to protect the war industry. That's yes. a pretty bald-faced admission that, yeah, I killed people because I wanted to make sure the war didn't end for us. I don't doubt that he believed that plunderers and saboteurs and agitators needed to die. That was certainly a primary motivation. But in this context, it is a defense strategy. He's, he's coming across as, as admitting something, um, and he is, but he's saying it for a reason. He's saying that he was convinced that these plunderers and saboteurs were a danger. So he's saying it was self-defense. We were killing them to protect ourselves and our people. He says that he was loyal to the people that were in power. He was a convinced national socialist. There he's saying, I was following orders. He talks about the extreme chaos. In that, where he's talking about the bombing of Hamburg, he's saying, you did it too. This is the same defense strategy that was, was used by a lot of other people in a lot of other post-war trials. He's phrasing it a little bit differently. And there's, there is some truth in this, absolutely. Uh, but there's a bit. It's not just some truth, Chris. It. It, no, but Chris, it's not just some truth. It is there. There's a real fear that if they don't, if they do not clamp down on this, then they will have another Cologne, and then they will collapse. Right? Like that's the whole 1918 thing. Yeah. What is it? The best lies are uh, have the kernel of truth. Right? Like uh-huh. the the this is not at, at no point yeah, is no, he you... he doesn't deny anything that he did. And yes, he's attempting to create a moral equivalency and cast dispersions, but uh-huh. that doesn't take any truth out of what he's saying in terms of why the Gestapo increased his violence in response to disorder. Does it? Well, I, I think that you're absolutely right that there is truth behind each of these things. Some may, be, may have been more important factors for him than others. But I guess what I'm saying is, Paul treats this as as his centerpiece. He uses a quote from it as a title for the chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we need to recognize that he said all of this stuff in court for a reason, in order to try and get acquitted. And you need to find other evidence to support each of these points. And even though he says, for example, that the people had been brutalized by the bombing, which makes sense, he said it because he's trying to cast the allies as being just as criminal as he was so this this by itself is not but chris uh, just because that's his defense strategy doesn't undermine this as a source because everything he's saying is also everything that he says is also supported by memoranda well why i brought this up was because of this this question of chaos he's trying to present a society that was in perpetual chaos Mm -hmm. that had brutalized all the people in it And he's doing that in order to point the finger at the Allies, in order to exculpate himself. Yes, Hamburg was severely bombed. Lots of people died. Uh, It was certainly a horrific experience that probably did brutalize people. There's truth there. He's not just making it up. But we don't have to accept his interpretation uh, and use it as the basis for uh, some of the rest of the chapter here. 
Why not? Uh, it fits with everything else. It fits with the historical record it, that was created at the time. A, but it smashes a huge timeline together into one little piece and, okay. and, and treats yeah, yeah, it like yeah. a single experience. That's true. That's true. But I mean, like ha- the major it, cities were bombed. What I'm saying, or the major cities were bombed on a weekly basis, bi-weekly basis, or twice weekly basis, at the end of the war, right? During particular campaigns, I, I mean, uh, like there, I know more about about the Ruhr because it's it's what I've been working on. Uh, for example, there was the the Battle of the Ruhr, where cities there would be targeted frequently, and then the bombing would move off to some other place, and there'd be periods of months and months sometimes when no bombing came, and then it would would return. Bomber Command were by the end of the war focusing on individual cities and regions and pummeling them, and then moving on to another place. So there there would be weeks where a city might get hit a few times. There were operations, though, where you would have the the British show up in the morning, the Americans show up at noon, and the British show up again uh, in the evening to the same city. But that wasn't happening every day. It had a, a staccato nature to it. Hmm. So I didn't mean to come over to the digital table at you. I'm just curious what your, <laughs> what your sort of because it's this vague suspicion about what he's saying. And like, I, I understand. Okay. So I understand that there's sort of the element of collapsing the timeline and treating a larger experience as, as a single whole. And the fact that he's doing this within the context of a defense strategy at trial, both of which are important to note, but that's also the way that human memory works. And mm-hmm. Also, what everything that is produced at the time period seems to show in terms of his specific concerns about we needed to kill these people because the war economy was going to collapse. That mm-hmm. that speaks to me of like genuine motivation. Oh, me too. Me, me too. I mean, it, I think that that was a huge factor. But you need other evidence, right? Well, but what I'm saying is that all of his other evidence is there, right? Like this is this is a great centerpiece to conclude everything that he's talked about because, and the, the issue is that he doesn't really talk about the memoranda a whole lot in the article. What I'm saying is as, as a historian, I know that everything in here is backed up by stuff that was written at yeah. the time in Cologne, right? So I don't have an issue with him using that as a piece of evidence because it brings everything that's in the files into a single statement that that provides clear focus into all of the themes that you see coming out in memoranda from Cologne in fall 1944. Mm-hmm. And it does it powerfully and it does it through it the does. lens of a single yeah, person's experience a, that puts a, a flourish a, to it. It it puts coherence on events, right? And it's not making anything up. It's everything that he's saying is borne out by contemporary records. Do you think that it then supports the idea of a society in chaos? I think that chaos prompted reactions to it. Like we've had the we've had the big discussions about um, the fall crisis and how the Gestapo learned from the fall crisis and established new mm-hmm. new ways of reacting to that to make sure that it didn't happen again. But uh, in, in that sense, yeah, it. But the the issue, and like we kind of touched on it before, for me, is that it treats chaos as a constant rather than a situation that arises, prompts a reaction, and 
like, like there's no you don't get the sense of the Gestapo trying to master chaos. You get the sense of the Gestapo as a, a rowboat caught on a, on a tsunami, right? Like they are being swept along and then violence results, right? When it feels much more like there is a wave and then the Gestapo is like, oh, well, we got to react to this. And they react to it and then they go, oh, well, what worked about that and what didn't work about that? And we've kind of restored the situation and we can back down and we can we can relax a little. And oh, God, here it comes again. Right. And then they and then they ramp up again and they react differently the second time than they do the first time. And, and I mean, there's other issues with the way that Paul, the language that Paul uses to describe it for me, where he talks about it as like a security paranoia. It might be a paranoia that is created by propaganda and encouraged by allied propaganda and announcements that foreign workers should become uh should should go delinquent in order to wait and become resistant the resistance but then when you have a week in cologne where a week of political murders occur immediately after that announcement is that then an irrational response right like uh and and you have gangs that appear to be acting in concert We've been trying to popularize this fall crisis phrase, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what you're saying sounds like you're describing a crisis society rather than a catastrophe society or a chaos society. Hmm. Uh, an environment where emergencies are frequent, but the powers that be whether they're the party or the police are reacting to them in a, I guess you could say a logical way in a in way a that makes sense way. to them. A structured yeah. way as well. Right. That there, there is madness going on around them, but it comes and fits and starts in crisis after crisis after crisis, rather than a perpetual state of chaos or catastrophe. I think that you just found the hook for the article, man. I I was trying to come up with a way to describe what I don't like about everybody's descriptions and why there's a problem with the chaos society. And like you can kind of pinpoint that advance and receding like the the ebb and flow of violence, but like you're onto something there. Like it, it it's it they're yeah, yeah. Structured responses and and logical responses within the worldview to real events yeah yeah the crisis gesellschaft it makes sense it it gives credit to the agency of the people that are making the decisions yes um, that uh the the local leaders matter because they're the ones that are on the ground and see what's happening they're also the ones who know what the higher-ups want and expect and have ordered and ultimately they have to bring those two things together they have to figure out how to implement these instructions in the situation that's that they're facing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think that that really sets the tone in the way that the in the way that the security forces are responding to these things. Cuz they they are responding, they're not swept away. And it's not it's not a spiral of violence that gets out of control and then comes down to the individual decision makers, right? Like this is a an organized response to crisis. Yeah. Hmm. I, I, I like that. I like that term a I lot. I do too. I like it a lot too. 
Did you just come up with that? Yeah, I think we're going to have to use it. All right. I think that should be the title of the article, man. But like as as a conceptual tool, I think that's way stronger than society and catastrophe cuz like crises are distinct, immediate. They they are finite events, right? And then they yeah. they, they are you are re, you respond to them, so it does it does capture that aspect of the Gestapo reacting to events, but they are like you say, they have they have a reaction. They aren't it doesn't happen to them. It doesn't make them do things, right? Something happens and then they reply yeah. to it. Yeah, and some of them are anticipated too. Like there's discussion about what do you do with your you know, prisoners in a police prison or in a concentration camp when the allies draw near? Like they've thought about this. That's that's a potential crisis. Mm-hmm. The the front line is breaking through. What is the way to behave in this situation? And they've considered it. They know more or less what's expected, and then they execute on those expectations. No pun intended. <laughs> Do you have anything else to say about Paul here? Um, I should say briefly. I was I was a little disappointed that he he opens up by by talking about how you know the Gestapo were not the only perpetrators of this this end phase violence, but then he doesn't really get into. Uh, other perpetrators of it you know and this this is a hole that we've identified over and over again what the hell was the party doing yeah yeah how involved were they how extensive were executions by the flying courts yeah how often did they issue how often did the flying courts actually issue carry out the death sentences and how often were those sentences commuted by the gauleiters mm-hmm. and really what was what was the role of lower level party functionaries in the process at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we have a pretty good idea of what the Gauleiters, the, the Reich defense commissioners were doing, but and then maybe the sources are out there. Maybe somebody's even written about it, but I've never, never read it. What were the smaller peacocks doing mm-hmm. besides running away whenever the allies showed up? <laughs> well, I mean, like, it's a really good question, right? Like, I mean, how much violence is involved in the social control through these other institutions? Because it doesn't seem to be happening through the Gestapo, at least towards average Germans. It's happening towards functionaries, and it's primarily functionaries of former leftist parties. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then a whole lot of foreign workers. But Of course. Although, you know, in, in that arena, the Gestapo certainly is very much involved. Yep. Um, I think your, your own work argues that the party becomes more involved with the the day-to-day policing of of Germans, right? Yeah, that's every indication that the Gestapo files give from mid-1943 onward, really. The dual pressures, right? And so that shift is definitely something that I'd like to investigate. I just need to find... I know that there's records for Eisenach, and what I'm trying to do right now is find places where there are good chunks of surviving party records for the district and uh, local level leadership, the Orts groups and the Kreisleitung, because it mm-hmm. seems like there's some, some going to be some goodies about policing hidden away in there. I bet you're right. And, you know, I would be, wouldn't be surprised if not many people have gone looking through party files to try and find out about policing. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, it makes sense, right? But 
I, and I mean, the only person who's really done any work on it has been um, Gisela Diewald Kerkman, who wrote a really interesting book about denunciation in the District Party Files. And I believe she used the Eisenach collection. That's how I know, that's actually how I know about it. But um, she's got, she's, she's, again, she's looking at it through the lens of denunciation and that debate in the 90s. So if you could, if you can find a way to see what happened with those letters and how many were actually sent to the police, then you can start to do some other interesting stuff. And like how, how the district party leadership resolved them and things like that. Like it, it would definitely be a more complex project because there's not an easily accessible mass collection to deal with it. But I think it's a really important one. Yeah. And one that like Paul, people have recognized that the party are, are important and involved in, in the end phase, but you don't have a whole lot of substance behind it. Yeah. Right. Huh. This happened. What next? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we draw this installment of the third Reich history podcast to a close. Chris and I have been talking about what comes next. So far as the podcast is concerned, we've been looking at Daniel Blattman's the death marches to shift our focus more into the actual experience of the Jews, target minorities, and the Holocaust at the end of the war. We've been looking at another Roots of Nazism episode about the polycratic administration and Ian Kershaw's article, Working Toward the Fuhrer. So you can expect some new ground to be broken again in the coming episodes. With that, I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then. <laughs>